0: We were up 600% year-over-year for the month uh, in the month of April. So that that month alone, I mean, we were doing 7x the number of units we were doing last year.
1: Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify. The easiest way to sell online, in-person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how they sold a year's worth of bikes in just one quarter and the logistics involved in pulling it off, the three ways that you can compete in a marketplace, and how to use showrooms to learn exactly how to market to your customers. Before we get into our show, I want to share a strategy some businesses are using to help manage cash flow during COVID-19. They're selling gift cards. Gift cards give customers a way to support you right now. We've seen some creative ways to market them, like selling gift cards at a discount, giving special offers for customers who've redeemed them in the future, and adding free gift cards to high-value carts as a bonus. As part of Shopify's response to COVID-19, gift cards are now available on all Shopify plans. So you can start selling them right away. For more information, visit shopify.com gift card. Today I'm joined by Ryan Zagata, president and founder of Brooklyn Bicycle company which was started in 2011 and based out of Brooklyn and is a seven figure business welcome Ryan
0: hey thanks happy to be with you Felix
1: so you decided to start this business after moving to Brooklyn so tell us about the inspiration behind that what inspired you to start this business
0: yeah this this goes back to prior to two thousand and eleven in two thousand and eight, uh, I was looking we were looking for a, a home to start a family. And I mean, anyone who's familiar with New York knows that the economics of uh, finding a multi-bedroom home in Manhattan don't make a heck of a lot of sense. So we started mm-hmm. looking to Brooklyn um we kind of left manhattan kicking and screaming uh it's kind of dating myself here but if you go back to the sex in the city episodes of the late 90s nobody wanted to move to brooklyn or go over the bridge <laughs> um but frankly speaking it just the economics of it made sense so in 2008 we moved to brooklyn um within about a week of moving here we realized that this this it was like the best thing we could have ever done Um, and we were really embraced by the community here. And for me, the community was probably a nine or 10 block radius where I would walk to a local coffee shop, a local gallery or a local restaurant or somewhere or a park. And after living here for probably about a year, um, you know, I was looking for a bicycle because I really wanted to expand the radius of that community well beyond the eight or 10 blocks that I would walk. Um, and it just became a 30 or 40 block radius and really expanded the radius of my community. So for me, um, you know, I I never looked at a bicycle as being, something I would race on. I'm not into mountain biking. Uh, I do do some road biking, but it wasn't really about the bike itself as much as it was about expanding the radius of my community. The bike just happened to be the way to do that. When I told my wife, I wanted to, uh, get another bike, cause I did have a, a road bike at the time that was used mostly for drying clothes hanging clothes on, um, you know, she's like, well, as soon as you get rid of your road bike, we can get another bike. I mean, if, if you live here in New York City, another thing, there's not big apartments here. There's not a lot of room for bicycles. So really for me, it, it, it had been when I moved to Brooklyn, just experiencing uh, the community, the sense of community here and, you know, giving people an opportunity or for myself, mostly giving an opportunity to expand further, you know, learning about new cafes, new galleries, new public spaces to take our children. And that was 2011. I mean, fast forward, to today, and, and we have, you know, 450 partners that, that carry our bikes. We focus exclusively on urban mobility. So we design and manufacture bicycles focusing exclusive on urban mobility. And as I suggested, we have two channels, um, certainly an e-commerce platform where we leverage Shopify. And we also have a wholesale brand uh, where we sell. We have about 450 partners in the United States and Canada, distribution in South America and distribution in Europe as well.
1: Got it. So it sounds like that value prop that you mentioned earlier about urban mobi- urban mobility. Can you speak more about that? What does that what does that mean to you guys?
0: it's it's how do you get people in and around uh, major metropolitan areas? So certainly, I mean, we're we're in a unique time right now with with what's going on with the global pandemic. So it's actually taking on profound uh, you know new meaning for everybody. But how do you move people in and around major metropolitan areas? We're fortunate enough here in New York to have a subway, buses, and uh, you know, certainly pedestrian pedestrian uh, ways to get around the city. We have ferry system, uh, we have Ubers, we so have City Bike. How do you get people around the city? safely, quickly, economically, comfortably, um, and, and more and more people are turning to bicycles. So I think if we were doing this podcast a year ago, uh, we would have all sorts of hopes and aspirations that the city would continue to increase and enhance infrastructure, not just in New York, but in every major metropolitan area. But with the pandemic, there is a phenomenon now. I mean, um, earlier we've, we've sold an entire season's worth of bikes between January 1st and probably about, uh, you know, April 15th, uh, and we'd ran out of bikes and is a, a, a total phenomenon as far as bikes are concerned. And, and my hope is that a lot of these major metropolitan areas, these, these urban areas where people are commuting from, uh, to and through rather, will embrace these new commuters, really throw their arms around them and help them to become, uh, you know, feel safe and continue to, you know, look at bicycles as a way of commuting around the city. It certainly makes economic sense um, and I think a lot of people are going to be reluctant, again, not just in New York, but every city, to jump back into public transportation. Mm.
1: So a year's worth of sales, and it sounds like a, one quarter, maybe a little bit over a quarter. What was the exact reason that you saw that that huge spike in growth over the first quarter of the year?
0: Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I certainly think i I love to pat ourselves on the back saying we're doing a tremendous job. And I think as a team, there are certainly some things that we've done and focused on that have moved the needle substantially. But by and large, this is this is a little bit of uh, of luck just being in the right business at the right time. Um, you know, people, you have really three phenomenon going on. I spoke to one, which is people public transport transportation, but the other two also played a big hand. One of them being every fitness studio, gym, spin studio, you know, pool in America has been shut down. So people are looking for a way to exercise and get out of their house when they're on lockdown. And then the other one certainly being uh, people in suburban areas, not necessarily looking for exercise, but looking for some sort of recreation with their families. Um, you know, kids, playgrounds are shut down, parks are shut down, beaches are shut down in many areas, amusement parks, water parks. Um, it seems like there's not a lot of opportunities for children to get out and do things. Again, bikes have have satiated that that need for people Able to get out and have some recreation, so those three phenomenon collectively hitting simultaneously here in the United States, the the federal government also set out some some money to to some individuals, you know, who are below a certain income level, um, and and you know we certainly saw a spike there. But by and large, it's just those three phenomenon: recreation, fitness, and and transportation, kind of coming together simultaneously. And I, I don't want to take away from what our, what our team has done to really help grow the business. I mean, we've we've certainly busted our butts to get uh, in front of a lot of magazines we, we feel quite confident about our product and, and the quality of the product and the service that we deliver so we really put ourselves out there to have the bikes reviewed a lot of i mean there's i don't think you can type city bike or commuter bike without us showing up on one of those lists and you know hats off to, to our team here our marketing team our marketing folks for really working their butts off to get our bikes out there in front of people just having the confidence that we put out a good product and, and, and letting it speak for itself
1: Makes sense. So I, I think some of those those uh, uh factors that led to the the huge spike in sales for you guys are are, are temporary. I, I think you can say some of them at least are temporary. How do you plan to extend this demand, or at least as as much as you can, given the uh, the new kind of newfound, I guess, interest in, in in buying in buying bikes for commuting and for for exercise?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think. There is going to be some, some some longer-term benefits. I don't think there's any question there, but you're right. I mean, I think of those three phenomena I referenced, commuting is probably the only one that's going to have legs. I think some of the people who are buying these bikes for recreation 12 months from now, they may be sitting in the garage collecting dust. Um, I'm not... I certainly hope that's not the case, but I, I think there's that's a strong possibility. But as far as commuting, I, I think uh, you know we're taking it upon ourselves. We're working with some advocacy organizations, People for Bikes, Transportation Alternatives here in New York. People for Bikes being a, a national organization, and just really trying to get in front of you know people who make the decisions in, in major metropolitan areas. That you know there's so many new people on the road. I mean, I, I you know, we probably ourselves put uh, just around 10,000 people on the road in New York alone, um, you know, earlier part of this year, you know, how do you embrace those people? How do you make them feel safe when the city kind of quote unquote comes gets back to normal. How do you make sure they feel safe? How do you help them commute without feeling that their their lives are in danger? So there's certainly things that we can control, but there's things that we cannot control. And that, that being the infrastructure in place. So a lot of what I'm spending some time on now is speaking to local council members here in New York City, writing to council members and mayors and other major metropolitan areas and Department of Transportation commissioners in major cities and just encouraging them to, you know, do the right thing, making their city more livable. It makes economic sense It makes a city, you know, less vehicular traffic makes a city a a great place to live as well. So, you know, I've kind of put on my advocacy hat now that we've we've blown through a bunch of inventory. And I'm also mindful, I mean, listen, we're – losing a ton of opportunity now. I mean, every day we're probably getting, I mean, we're getting tons of traffic, but also probably 20 or 30 phone calls. Do you have this bike? Do you have that bike? And frankly speaking, it would have been quite callous of me or pretty cavalier rather of me to, you know, have some aggressive forecast and buy three or four times the number of bikes we would traditionally sell in a year. Um, and, and if the pandemic didn't hit, it's like predicting an earthquake, we would have been bankrupt. Um, so yeah, certainly disappointing to not have bikes to fulfill a lot of the demand that's out there. But the other side of the equation is equally as important if realizing if we had been overly aggressive and this pandemic, I mean, who knew this pandemic was, was going to happen. I, I think sure. a lot of people, a lot of people would have done things, things differently. Um, but I think if we had gone all in and brought in a ton of bikes and nothing like this happened, uh, we would be, this would be a much different conversation.
1: Mm. Now, when you did see that spike, how did you deal with the logistics and like it sounded like you had some inventory squeeze from this this spike in demand. What was that? What was that like when you started seeing these bikes fly off the shelves at like four times the speed that it was previously? How did you guys react to that?
0: Yeah, I mean, speaking specifically to the month of April, we were up 600% year over year or year over year for the month uh, in the month of April. So that that month alone, I mean, we were doing 7x the number of units we were doing last year. So um, we had brought on – we were quite fortunate earlier this year. We opened up uh, a little operations center in the Philippines, so we have some team members there who are helping us. Uh, our team member in new york so we staffed up a little bit here as well everyone's working from home so i think we're able to capture a little bit of uh, operational efficiencies by people not having to spend you know 20 30 minutes or an hour commuting each way so we picked up some wins there but we really rely on our partners we rely on the the 3pl the third party logistics warehouses that that fulfill our bikes and we are in communication with them you know, I don't want to say 24/7, but it, every day of the week, what are your plans? What happens if someone gets sick in the facility? And just really understanding what can go wrong here. We brought a lot of bikes. We 2018, we opened a physical showroom in Greenpoint. We brought a lot of bikes into our into our showroom physically and just left them there in case something happened with our warehouse. So we really did a, um, you know, kind of a, a trauma. We had like a trauma center and said, what could possibly go wrong? what can we do in advance of it going wrong to circumvent that should something go wrong? And most of it was logistics. Uh, we rely on on FedEx for the ground transportation. By and large, they did an okay job. Um, but I think when the pandemic was in full tilt here in New York and everything was shutting down and everyone was on lockdown, you know, FedEx would do some some drive-by deliveries where they wouldn't even attempt to make a delivery, even though bicycle shops had been deemed essential infrastructure and they were open. So, um, we certainly had some challenges there. But really, just having the confidence in your infrastructure that you put in place, your partners, um, and not only did we do a a you know trauma before, we did a post-trauma. So once we kind of ran out of a lot of inventory, we looked back and said, all right, what happened here? What did we do right? What broke? And how do we prevent that from happening again? So uh, we implemented NetSuite as our ERP in 2018. It's been an awesome, awesome solution. Um, and we hadn't been relying upon it. We had kind of been taking baby steps. But you know, more or less overnight, we kind of dove right into NetSuite and started leveraging leveraging a lot of the power of that solution as an ERP to help communicate with our customers, let them know when they can expect their deliveries, let them know when bikes are going to be back in stock, communicate with our wholesale customers, let them know when bikes are going to be back in stock. Um, so it really Having that infrastructure in place was great, but being able to flip those levers and, and turn different parts of the solution on, you know, in very short order uh, was also helpful. And then lastly, I mean, I, I know this is a Shopify podcast, but, um, you know, the, the, the Shopify infrastructure that we have in place and how it plugs into everything, um, I, you know. Really, that was probably the biggest win for us. How easy it was for us to go out and update our customers or snap in an app, uh, a pre order app, for example, when we ran out of bikes. How do we get people, you know? able to, to how do we keep our revenue flowing even though we don't have product to sell so we started implementing things like a pre-order app and other applications to inform people when things are going to be back in stock uh, we use some some different mapping applications on the platform so how do we let people know who has inventory who doesn't have inventory so just really relying on you know all the infrastructure that we had in place and and most of it being technology to you know keep ourselves above water but it was uh it was was overwhelming to say the least um, and, and to your point earlier, Felix, I don't anticipate we're going to see uh, that level of growth. But you know, organic growth, be that as it may, you know, begets organic growth. So we, we feel confident we put out a good product. We give great experiences to customers. And word, word travels fast. Um, you know, four or five years ago, you know, seven, I'm sorry, six or seven years ago, we were more in our infancy. Um, not, as a lot of, not a lot of people had our bikes. There wasn't a lot of word of mouth out there. But when you're putting, you know, 10,000 bikes, 20,000 bikes a year out, in, out into the street, people talk. They have a good experience. They tell their friends who are looking for bikes, you should get a Brooklyn. Um, and, and that's really been a, a big source of of traffic for us. I mean, most of our web traffic now is is organic. Um, predominantly from Best of List, as I mentioned before, we had a pretty aggressive campaign over the past few years to get our bikes out in front of uh, you know major publications, uh, the New York Times, Bicycling Magazine, um, you, know, you know, Cool Runnings, a lot of different publications out there who do bike reviews, Forbes, and, and I can probably go on for hours. Business Insider, uh, just you know, sending product. Letting them come to the showroom, test ride our bikes, experience our, our buy and ride program. You know, bikes are a little bit different than than many other products that you sell online in that they're they're big, they're durable goods, and they require assembly and, and arguably professional assembly. Um, if you simply send someone a bike and say, good luck putting it together, um, you know, two things will happen. Number one, the customer, most customers are gonna have a pretty, pretty bad experience. Um, not many people are excited to get a a bike in a box on their front porch. And certainly we don't want the liability of someone self-assembling the bike with their friends over a bottle of wine on a Friday evening.
1: It's not like Ikea furniture, huh?
0: Yeah. I mean, what's the worst thing that happens if you, if you assemble a nightstand incorrectly, it's a little bit wobbly, right? And that's something you, something you could probably live with. If a bike isn't assembled incorrectly, you're going to roll into traffic. And you know, the worst thing that might happen, the best thing that might happen is you'll fall off your bike. Um the worst thing that could happen, you know, let's not even go there. But it's uh it's there's there's consequences, I, I think is what I'm suggesting. Um, you know, early on, you know, one of the challenges that we faced really early on in the business was Everybody wanted to see the bikes. It's not like again Nike sneakers that are everywhere and your friend has them. You know we didn't have the economies of scale yet where our bikes were out there in the public domain. Everyone wanted to see and touch and feel the bikes. So simply throwing up a website and selling bicycles was wasn't really the solution. We had to quickly go out and and, and source and look for partners who would stock our bikes or at least put them on their floor for people to test ride. So that was a really early struggle for us. Is everyone's calling? Where can I try your bike? And I'm just like, what do you what do you got to try a bike for? It's a bike. And it's like this, you know, that was a, an ignorant thought on my part, but at the same time it really pushes us in the direction of how do we get infrastructure in place where people can touch and see. And that was the the beginning of our, our wholesale program. And now that's that's you know, over half of our business is wholesale. We have a buy-and-ride program, so every single bike purchased on our website is shipped to a bike shop for professional assembly. That's baked into the price. Nobody's paying for shipping. Nobody's paying for professional assembly. And it's also good because these bike shops are getting a new customer walking in their door who will pick up a bike, but then they also turn around and buy a helmet, <clears throat> buy a lock, buy a bell in – you know. Of the 450 partners that we have who do assemblies for us, over half of them have uh, become dealers, you know, through our through the Assembly Partner Program. They learned about us through assembling our bikes. They liked our customers. They liked our product. And now they, they subsequently are, are stocking our bikes in their showroom. So it's been a, a great source of, of wholesale business for us as well to kind of put our bikes out there. But, again, you know, what was the problem? The struggle was that people wanted to see our bikes. And the solution for that was, you know, setting up some wholesale infrastructure, some showrooms uh, where people could actually go and see the bikes.
1: So you said a lot of awesome things. There, things there. So I want to dive into it. So one of the ones that you were just talking about just now was about this uh, request from your customers before they wanted to, they were comfortable buying to first see the bike. So before, I, I'm assuming it takes a while to set up this kind of whole chain of uh, of the dealers and partners to have your bikes out in showrooms or or to eventually even have them as retailers for you. In the meantime, were you able to do anything to try to overcome some of these these hesitations that your prospective customers had before purchasing?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing for us that we continue to do to this day is make ourselves infinitely accessible is what I like to call it. Uh, That means everywhere you go on your website, something's going to pop up, call us, chat with us set up a concierge. So so we hadn't done this at the time, but one of the things that we also implemented is people can do a, a video call in and we'll walk them through our products. Um, we're about to start taking advantage of Shopify's 3D. So you can actually do a VR and, and drop a bike uh, in front of you. It's super clever. And you can kind of walk up and, and almost as if you're there. But so we're taking advantage of different technologies. But in the, in the very near term, it was just scheduling phone calls, consultations with people and walking them through, making sure we're asking the right questions, understanding what their needs were. Um, you know, you walk into a bike shop and they're going to push the first bike they, they see at you without asking too many questions. I tell the team that we're very much like, like doctors. It's our job to diagnose, you know, what these people need. Ask the right questions and then prescribe something to them. And I, I, my, the example I always give is: imagine if you walked into a doctor and he just handed you a prescription before he even talked to you. That would be pretty, pretty awkward, you know. Way way to, to visit a doctor if he just handed you a prescription.
1: Malpractice too.
0: Malpractice as well, for sure.
1: And and uh,
0: to say the least. Um, but the, but the, the the thought process here is like you know. We are, it is our job, it is our obligation to understand what these people are looking for before we go out and start selling. And people all the time are so quick to just, oh, this will be great. You need this. You need this. And and maybe they don't need that. Maybe they don't need that. Our $500 product, our $450 product might work. Or maybe they need our our $800 product. And and what sort of accessories do they need to go with it to, you know, to have a successful and, and a great experience with the brand? Um, I don't want to not sell someone a lock and then find out their bike was stolen a week later. So, you know, we use solutions like Candy Rack to offer add-ons on a product-by-product product basis that we think are appropriate, um, you know, for customers to use. But just to take a step back, because this kind of goes to how we get where we were from a, a design process. I, I'm not of the bike industry. I was actually in technology. I worked for a software company. I sold software for many years. And prior to that, um, I worked uh, in finance uh, with municipal finance, helping cities finance their infrastructure, roads, stadiums, schools. Um, so when I had the idea when I bought a bike and realized how it had changed my life and had the idea to start the business in 2011, I had a couple prototypes made. Again, I didn't know a lot about bikes, but I humbled myself and went to about a dozen bike shops here in New York city. And I brought the bike to the, to the shop. And I said, look, this isn't my, this bike isn't my, it's not my child. It's not my wife or my mistress or my friend. I don't care about this bike. All we care about is making a better product. And to that end, what you know what can you tell me would you carry this bike and without fail they all said no way i wouldn't carry this bike and i didn't care again as i said before this isn't i don't have any relationship with this bicycle it's a widget to me i just want to make better products and so without they all gave me feedback and i went back to our our supplier at the time who was making our prototypes and we implemented those and fast forward 90 days when our first container of bikes lands and i go to some of these bike shops and they became our first four or five Bike shops early on um, who are going to start carrying our bikes. So it was just again putting your idea out there. I'm not a I'm not a believer that there's really any original idea in the world. I think a lot of this stuff is just rehashed. You know, old ideas that have been rehashed. You know, based on what today's circumstances are. So you know, I'm nobody's signing NDAs, I and mean, this is a bicycle. So <laughs> there's nothing overly. Crazy about it, but again, our commitment as a team was to put the best product out there as we possibly can. And again, not being from the from the bike industry, while it has helped me in many many ways, and I, I would say it helps has helped me infinitely, um, just by not you know kind of ignoring a lot of the. The original ideas of the bike industry and focusing on what what I thought would be appropriate. But one way it certainly posed a challenge is that I didn't know what constituted a good bike or a great bike or an amazing bike, and that's you know where where we set out to to design our product by just putting these in front of um, everyone we could possibly get in front of in the industry, and they were they were by and large really receptive, and the. Unplanned effect of that is we ended up getting some some early customers who did end up putting our bikes in their showroom or buying some to to sell to their customers. So it ended up working kind of twofold.
1: So I think this is a really important lesson that you're talking about, which is your ability to divorce yourself from the product. And you did that with your bicycle, at least the early prototypes. And just, just so you can get better and more honest feedback. You know, to be honest, you'll get the feedback at some point regardless. You put it out into the market and no one buys it. That is feedback. But you're willing to get the feedback as early as possible. So I think this is an important lesson because I think a lot of people are married to the product, married to the first prototype, married to the idea. And might be closing themselves off from the feedback that they need to improve the product. Product, or maybe even change it all altogether. So any advice for anyone out there that is kind of t- really stuck to their product and just has a hard time taking that kind of advice when it feels like there's their baby, like you're saying?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'll just tell a story that in about 2017, so mind you, we started the business in 2011, uh, I was riding my bike around Brooklyn and I saw somebody on one of our original bikes um, from 2011. And I approached this gentleman and I gave him my card and said, do me a favor, Um, whenever you get a chance, bring that bike to our showroom and I want to give you a new one. I want to take that one back. And I will tell you without fail, if you have a product and you have to look at it as a widget, at some point you'll be embarrassed of your first go to market product. It's not, it's not, doesn't matter. It's not done good. It's not bad. It doesn't mean it's horrible. It just means that you will get that much better that you'll you'll be embarrassed when someone has your first product and my experience was that it was 3 years ago I saw somebody riding a, our 6 year old bike so I was happy it was still on the street but we had gotten so much better as a brand our products were so much better our qc was so much better our fulfillment was so much better Uh, that I just wanted to kind of, I felt like I wanted to do right by this guy. I mean, he'd been supporting us or riding his bike for six or seven years. Um, So again, I was delighted that it lasted, but I knew that we could do better. And uh, I don't know if embarrassed was the word, but I was more or less like, I want to do right by this guy. He's been riding his bike that, you know, probably wasn't the best bike we could have put out there. But again, we wanted to get to market as quickly as possible. And our way of getting to market quickly was going to these bike shops, taking that feedback and putting it out there. But subsequent to that, we've just, you know, made... Boatloads of of improvements based on customer feedback and what have you. So, you know, my advice would be just just acknowledge that somewhere along the line you're going to put a better product out there. So, you know, by marrying yourself to your original product and thinking that's going to be the the end of the world, um, that's kind of a losing proposition. That's uh, that, that's what I would say. Um, and and again, we're always in the pursuit. I mean, there's as a brand, I think there's three different ways you can compete. Right? You can be the least expensive of something and you could be the best of something. Those are two ways. The cheapest or the best. And I find both those ways to be fleeting because anybody can undercut your price. There's always someone willing to go out of business to sell more of something. It's, it's inevitable. It happens. I mean, look at the bankruptcies right now. Um, there's always someone willing to, to drive themselves out of business to show a, an increased top line and completely disregard their margins. Um, there's always someone who could you know, put a better pedal on a bike or a better handlebar or a better grip or a better saddle. So I think from a uh we make the best perspective that's also a little bit of a fleeting thing to keep trying to one up the next the next company and for me the way i i have always been taught to compete is by being different that's something that nobody can replicate if you're different if you give someone a different experience if you care about somebody um, you know, we we give a you know, a damn about what people, you know, what their experiences, and you know, it's actually damn probably isn't the right word that we use. But I've been advised not to curse on the podcast, but we do we do very much care about everybody's experience. Genuinely. Um, I don't want, you know, I don't want to go to bed at night knowing that, you know, somebody got a bike and had a bad experience at a shop. So, you know, I can't prevent every bad experience out there, but when someone tells us that a bad experience, we can certainly drop what we're doing and make it right for them. Um, so that's something we also spend a lot of time doing is, you know, inevitably it's, it's becomes fewer and fewer, but people have a bad experience. Um, a lot of times it has to do with an assembly partner who may have hastily um, put a bike together. And, and, and how do you, how do you make amends on something like that? So that's a long way of saying don't be married to your product and, and a couple other tidbits in there
1: got it so while you were going through this process of iterating on your product you you, you did something that, that's interesting that I I think uh, I want to talk about a little more which is that you went to the people that worked in the industry into the, the into the shops and got the feedback from I'm assuming that the employees that work there when a lot of people when they think about how do I validate a product how do I see what kind of changes I should make what kind of feedback I should get they go for like the end customer and maybe your industry is different because maybe the the workers are also you know potential customers of yours but why 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 did you go for the bike shops instead of just – instead of going for like a a person that would have purchased a bike?
0: Yeah, I I mean I guess it would liken it to if I was creating pots and pans, do I want to go to someone who cooks at home or would I want to go to a professional chef who knows pots and pans inside out Um, and probably will make a much better story when when you go to market. So I wanted to go to experts who aren't just necessarily riding bikes but also they're the ones who see when these bikes come in. Um, you know, if somebody purchased a bike at Target or Walmart or, or a, a, you know, a $79 bike online, they're the ones who see these bikes when they come in, they see a lot of the missteps that brands have made. So for my mindset, I was like, well, I would rather go to a bike shop who is repairing these things subsequent to somebody purchasing and you know, doing at-home assembly of a bike, what are they seeing with these products? So how do we avoid those from the jump? Um, So that was kind of my methodology is like, let's go to someone who is servicing this product, who's working with this product day in and day out, as opposed to someone who may be riding it. Because someone who's riding a bike may want to tell me, hey, you know what, you should get a really nice saddle and really nice grips. And I think those are very important. But Let's not forget that a bicycle is a functional machine. It needs to to roll and stop and go slower and faster and keep you safe and you know do a lot of different things at once. Again, is not something that just needs a visual visually appeal to somebody. You know, if you see our website, you you know we focus a lot on visual appeal, but you know that's something we can kind of do on our own. But to find out functionally speaking, this is a functional machine. So I want to go someone who knows this machine inside and out, and that's why we went to the bike shops.
1: Hey. Real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Got it. So you mentioned that you're not of the industry. You're not an industrial designer. You came in with these prototypes. How did that process even begin? I mean, I, I would think that a lot of people that are starting a business, creating product from scratch, they would pick something a little bit simpler to, <laughs> to, to start off with. But you you start off with a bicycle. How did you even begin on this process of even coming up with a prototype for a bike?
0: Yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty. Would I have done a bicycle again? Who knows? Um, we're having a lot of fun now, but yeah, that's that's a super certainly a very valid point. Um, so, as part of the where, where the business kind of the seed was planted in two thousand eight when I moved to Brooklyn, but the 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 light bulb didn't really go off per se until two thousand eleven when I was traveling in Vietnam and and everyone. Uh, around Ho Chi Minh City, was riding around on a bicycle, and there's, you know, not just for transportation, but they were vehicles where they were carrying cargo, and they had, you know, stacks of wheat or linens or or packages, whatever it was, they were working with, stacked up on the back of their bike. And I looked at my wife at the time, and I said, "This that that's the exact bike I wanted." And before we'd even left Vietnam, I was just, uh, you know, online googling bike manufacturers. There happened to be a very small small bike manufacturer here in Brooklyn, uh, and I was ordering a prototype before I even um left Vietnam literally so we had our first prototype quite quickly um and that's where we ultimately ended up that's where I ultimately ended up bringing that around to bike shops so you know it's finding someone who could put together a prototype for you get something you know it's very easy to show sketches and drawings and things like that but i find it much easier if you have something tangible even if it's not perfect you know i think there's a, a saying out there that i use all the time that done is better than perfect having something tangible to bring to someone to show someone is always going to be much better than showing someone, you know, some sort of digital 3d model. I mean, so, uh, just again, not being from the industry, really relying on this supplier to tell me, you know, what would be important here? What would be important there, at least from the, from the jump early on there. And then, you know, having the humility to go to bike shops and say, look, I don't care about this product with the exception that I want to make it better. That was kind of phase two of that after I had the initial prototype built.
1: Got it. Okay, so once you had that initial prototype built, how long did it take before you had a, a version that was good enough at that time to to go to market or into, into production?
0: Yeah, great question. So, we set up the LLC in February of 11. So, Vietnam was January of 11, and then we moved quickly. February of 11 was the LLC. Prototype was April of 11, and our first container of bikes was uh, late August 2011. I happen to be married to a a publicist. So, a a big and important part, um, uh, you know, things I I would, you know, help people understand is that when I told her I was going to start a bike company, uh, she said, Who cares? Like, you know, there's a million bike companies out there. Like, who cares? What's different? What what are you going to do different? And uh, so that really helped me to step back and say, we need to think about how, you know what 's going to make us stand out as a brand, what is going to be our story as a brand and That was something that that really has always struck stuck with me rather when we 're designing new products when we 're implementing something, when we 're opening our showroom. You know, are we going to give a different experience? What are we going to do differently? And that those words that that she spoke to me have always resonated with me when we're designing something is like, what are what's what's newsworthy about this? What are people going to care about? Because if we just simply put out a new color bike and all of a sudden we have a green bike and now we have a blue one that's not newsworthy. You have to, you know, you want to do something different and kind of move the needle and push it. So again, I think for me is just really stepping back and, and thinking, you know, what's different about what it is that we're about, what it is that we're doing that would make this kind of newsworthy and appeal to people.
1: That's, that, I like that. I like that. This is a really interesting approach about when you're thinking about releasing new products or releasing new, new features, you think about what is newsworthy? What would actually end up on a publication that would want to, wants to talk about you and your story? So is this, are these like things that come from like a a shower thought or is there like some research process that you go through to understand what is something that's newsworthy to put out?
0: so I mean we have what I would call a secret sauce and that's our showroom um, you know before this a lot of it was talking to people in the industry talking to all of our dealers doing customer a lot we do a lot of customer surveys we don't just survey customers who have bought bikes are actually to be frank a lot of the the best Best feedback we get is from people who didn't buy our bikes. And, and what we've learned is, is, you know, obviously there's a lot of bike brands out there that we compete with, but we compete more with somebody not buying anything. They don't buy any bike as opposed to somebody buying a bike. We don't lose to another brand as much as we lose to somebody not buying anything. But when I talk about the secret sauce is we opened a showroom in in Greenpoint in Brooklyn here in 2018. And uh, the first thing I said to the team is, look, when someone walks in those doors It is a win, whether they buy a bike or a helmet or they buy nothing at all, it is a win. It is an opportunity for us to watch them interact with our product. And again, we have been a wholesaler and an e-commerce brand. I don't really get to see very often people's first experience with our product. And and I would imagine a lot of e-commerce brands are the same way. You ship somebody something, you don't get to see them unboxing it. You don't get to see them, you know, using that pan or that knife or that putting that hat on for the first time. So we opened our showroom in 2018. It was like, you know, this is like a flood of changes as far as how do we do what do we do for product improvement. So, you know, it's a win when someone walks in because we're learning from them. I'm watching what do they grip first on the bike? What do they look at first? What are the, the top 15 questions people are asking and how do we answer those questions? Because now our website is really an extension of our showroom. It is like an online showroom. We'll do, as I mentioned before, virtual showroom visits, um, lots of different things. And the showroom is really, you know, how do we take the showroom experience? So we have probably, you know, 60 or 70 five-star reviews from people in the physical showroom. How do we... Take that experience we are giving people in the physical showroom and bring that over online. So we rely on a lot of tools for that. But to me, that is our secret sauce now in what we're designing in our new product pipeline. So, you know, we very, we're very much very quickly now learning what's missing from our portfolio that would have probably taken us two or three years to learn before from speaking to our dealers because they're sourcing those products from other brands. Now, when people come into our showroom and our brand is the only one on display, it's very quick to see what are the gaps in our portfolio that people are continually asking for. So that is now I call our showroom, First of all, it's a great place to visit. We have a, a bar cart it's a I mean, we have you know a great musical system we have a, uh, a music system we have a um, playlist that we, we jam out to in there We have our design studio in the back so people can kind of see you know how the bikes are designed and, and, and meet some members of the team. but really for us you know what while we sell bikes through there we only fulfill again through our partners so we don't send anybody out of the showroom with a bike but selfishly, like, we are learning so much about our consumers, what they're looking for, what, what we don't have, what we do have, what other brands they're, they're looking at. So, it's just really been a, a tremendous asset, far exceeding anything we could have ever expected by opening up that showroom. And in fact, um, you know, with the pandemic, I think there's going to be some opportunities for us to open up other showrooms in major metropolitan areas across the country. And that's uh, something we're starting to look into.
1: Yeah, I, I like that. I think um, the showroom. A lot of times, we think of it as a, an opportunity for the customer to learn more about us, about the products. But you're using it almost as a way to like reduce like the fog of war of of learning more about your customers and being in business. Like what are, what are all the things that we're missing because we can only. Hear from from you know like a, a game a telephone or see it online, but only bits but, you know here here and there. So you can identify these like small objections that you're talking about that can either be overcome in your marketing or on your website in the messaging or actual product improvements. So if anyone out there doesn't have a showroom or maybe doesn't have the means to to get one, are there ways that you can replicate this online to get feedback from people that specifically didn't buy?
0: Yeah, so I mean. People who don't buy, so there, there's a couple things we do. I mean, we use a, to us, one of our biggest, far and away, our biggest lead generator uh, is a quiz to help people find the right product in our portfolio. So again, bikes can be a little bit confusing. Not everybody knows a lot about bicycles, so we try to be very educational, but we do offer a quiz, three questions, quick quiz, you know, what, what style of bike are you looking for? What type of, you know, what's your terrain like? And I, I, don't, I don't recall the third question off the top of my head, but that's a huge source, of inbound leads for us. They get our newsletter, they fall into um, a little bit of a, a campaign early on to onboard them and, and introduce them to brand and give them some educational information and share more about us. But just, again, trying to be generous as possible, whether somebody buys our bike or they don't buy our bike, but they use us to learn more about bikes. At the end of the day, I mean, it's, it's all a means to an end. Um, but what we did do is people who are guided toward a certain bike we capture that so you know Felix is, is guided toward this Bedford model which you know is our city model and then six months later Felix didn't buy that so we'll send you a survey and say hey we noticed you didn't buy this uh, if you're interested, you know here's a, here, here's you know, what maybe a well sell, sorry' a free set of lights if you end up buying it, but if you didn't buy it, um we'd still love to send you some lights if you bought another bike, would well, just let us know like what here's three questions would you mind taking a second to answer that and we get pretty good feedback on that, and again, it cost us you know whatever a, a set of lights cost us, but at the same time, the information you get from people who didn't buy a bike is invaluable. Um, so that's surveying people, capturing the leads we co- we covered right there. Then also, um, you know, how do you find out when people don't buy your product, what you know, what they did? Do they buy something else? Do they are they still saving up for it? Um, so we get all sorts of answers. And then the other side of that equation of people who, you know, there's there's many opportunities for for showrooms, but you know, one of the things we've done very recently with the pandemic, I mean, the pandemic has forced people to evaluate their business and and do things in real time instead of plotting and testing. And our virtual showroom visits again you could do it from a home office if you wanted but our virtual showroom visits have been phenomenal you you know I, I have a little stand there I set up a camera I stand in front of the camera someone gets a you know an, an, a zoom link and I walk them through our models and I ask questions I get on the ground I'll, I'll pick up the bike I'll move the camera into the bike I'll sit on the bike to kind of let them see the riding posture of the bike and I don't think there's anyone out there that can't do this without any product it doesn't really cost you anything other than your time. Um, And, again, it instills in your customers the fact that you give a damn about them and you want them to have the right product. And and at the end of the day, if it's not the right product, it's fine. But it provides that same experience I mentioned before. You're getting to understand what are their questions, what are their concerns. And then from a website perspective, you can go back and edit your website to make sure you're addressing those because a lot of people aren't going to call. But you better believe they're going to have the same questions that that person who called in will have. Um, I'm sorry, they will have the same questions that that person on that that virtual visit did have. So it's a good opportunity also to, um, you know, build, you know, expand upon your your FAQs or your on your product page. Uh, what what information you're putting forth there on each individual product
1: page. Mm, so I, I like this this concept of the quiz. And I think the last one that that, that was height was part of the quiz that, that, that you, you asked as well. So how did you know that these were the questions to ask? You know, obviously it's to help recommend a bike, but does this data help the business in any other ways?
0: Yeah, I think at the end of the day, we aggregate all this data. Um, so we start to see like what's a demand for some, you know, different height ranges, what's the demand? Uh, what's sort of what's the terrain like? Do we need to offer bikes with a wider gearing range? Are we offering, you know, bikes that have too many gears? So it really helps us to go back and see, you know, based on all these people. And then also we try to capture where somebody is. Um, So we can start seeing, hey, we're seeing a lot of demand in this metropolitan area. We don't have a showroom partner there. That also becomes part of our our pitch to bike shops in those cities that, hey, we've seen a Sevenfold increase in traffic in the metropolitan Los Angeles metropolitan area, and we only have two partners there. I we'd love to round out our portfolio and pick up somebody in Orange County or over in Santa Monica or downtown Los Angeles. So there's a couple things that really that data helps us to pick up. Um, and, and again, all that goes back in. We kind of continue to refine. I, I, the team we always say we're we're never done. Um, you know, we're always looking for for more opportunities to expand the quiz. I know now we have another quiz to help people properly, not just give them the right size, but ask a bunch of questions to guide them toward uh, the right model and the right size. So before we'd recommend, um, you know, bikes based on your particular riding needs and what sort of style you're looking for, but now we're going to take that into consideration along with some other information, not just give them the model, but also say it's model and size. So we're, we're trying to take it a step further.
1: Got it. So now you mentioned that once, if they don't purchase, there, there's a certain amount of time that passes where you send them a survey about it. Uh, do you do you remember a, a recent change that you had made to the website, either to the FAQs or just the way that you laid things out or the, the messaging on the website that made a, a noticeable difference in sales that came from the responses to, to that survey for people that did not buy?
0: Yeah, well, there's two things. We also, one of the other huge things that we do is we, there's an app called post-purchase survey that we use um, and it really gives us insight into where our strengths lie how people are hearing about us so um, you know one of the things that we've learned we use judge.me for reviews which uh, you know i've been with, we've been with them since the very beginning and they're outstanding but 60% of our customers in these post purchase surveys are suggesting that the reviews. This is what what led you to ultimately make the purchase, and it was the reviews. Um, So again, what we try to do is emphasize the reviews higher up on the product page. I think even the reviews now can be found above the fold on our product pages. So those are some things that we've done. um, Specific to height, that's a big question. So we have a couple pop-ups now very early on above the fold on the product page that help people find the right size. So all these things, these conversations that we're having, um, with folks the other thing that kind of comes up a lot in these quizzes is you know people we don't have enough gears or, or how do i get my bike so we we you know hit people over the head with our buy and ride program which is how we ship the bike to a local bike shop because people even though we have it all over the website we still get questions how am i going to get my bike i don't know how to assemble a bike and it is i mean you can't go to our website without seeing references on every page to our buy and ride program but we still continually look for ways to how do we better explain the buy and ride program so that nobody has any doubt or any question that yes it is not it's not fake news it is not a, a, a fake promise we are absolutely paying for shipping and your bike will absolutely be professionally assembled in a bike shop local to you um and it's i don't know if people just you know don't don't want to believe it, or they've been burned before. But it, there's there's no there's no falsehoods here. It's very real. Um, so we answer a lot of questions on how our buy and write program works. So that's also something, as I suggested, we're trying to you know continually refine the imagery and the wording on how do we explain that program to make sure it's it's easily understood.
1: Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned to us earlier on that over half of your your sales is wholesale, or half of your business is wholesale, and and also the buy and ride program. So how did you build this out? How did you organize this kind of infrastructure for supporting the the, the supply chain essentially for your business?
0: Yeah, well, the, the buy and ride program, you know, is painstakingly challenging. It was kind of one shop at a time. We get a sale in Phoenix, Arizona. We don't have an assembly partner there we get on the phone, I'd call a local bike shop, we have a customer in Phoenix who purchased a bike, we don't ship our bikes to people's porches, you know, can we send it to you and we will pay you to professionally assemble the bicycle. And then, you know, early on when we were probably the pioneers of this program, I mean, everyone in the bike industry is doing it, not everyone, a lot of of brands in the bike industry are doing it now, but early on, um, we were... I think I've been told by a couple of shops we were one of the first ones to do it, um, and then you know they get the bike and then they're like it oh, was pretty good. You know how much do you sell your bikes for? And it's like oh it's it's whatever it's four ninety nine five forty nine. And do you have a wholesale program? Yeah, we do. So that actually uh, you know one by one with sales we built out this network, um, and then over time we actually formalized the assembly partner program. And we went back to everyone who's ever built a bike for us. And said, hey, we're going to create a flat fee program here. We're going to pay you X amount of dollars to do that. And in exchange, we're going to try to drive more physical foot traffic to your store. So there's a kind of our promise to you is anyone in Phoenix now, we will send to your shop. So we're not going to pick up six shops in Phoenix. We'll go for one or two shops in Phoenix. And then these bike shops ultimately see that there's nobody in Phoenix, Arizona stocking this brand. But this brand is, is doing well enough in selling bikes here, sight unseen, maybe this is somebody we should talk to so as i suggested over half of our stocking dealers have come out of that assembly partner program you know we just try to continually funnel all of our our sales in every major metropolitan area through one or depending on the size of the city through one or two shops and then you know the more we continue to sell in those major metro areas those shops ultimately will come back and be like hey we need to how do we get on board here and the other thing is you know we operate with a lot of integrity we don't compete against these dealers if somebody buys a bike in phoenix arizona on our website we ship it to that shop and we flip that sale over to that shop so we don't turn around and and try to compete against our dealers and say oh somebody you know the, the reference one of our dealers made when he first you know, had his first sales. Like that was the easiest bike I've ever sold. It was two in the morning. Maybe somebody came back from their, the local watering hole and bought a bike online at two in the morning. I don't know. I don't ask questions, but I do know the bike shop was closed at two in the morning and we were open. Um, so they bought a bike and that customer went to the bike shop to pick it up. That bike shop got credited with the sale and they've come back and, you know, used that account credit to, to purchase more product.
1: Awesome. So are bicycles apt for repeat purchases? Like what is that like? Yeah, that's
0: that's a great question. Um, They're, they're kind of durable goods. So the lifetime value of a customer is, is we focus a lot more on getting referrals than we do on trying to sell somebody a second bike. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we are, I don't want to play in the, $2000 bike category or if somebody falls in love with biking maybe they they get a road bike I don't want to be the brand that's going to supply them that road bike there's plenty of amazing road bike companies out there and and frankly speaking um we want to stay laser focused on this urban mobility so we focus a lot more on how do we treat people incredibly well and give them a great experience and you know their lifetime value can be measured through the referrals they give us rather than their individual purchases we do use uh, I mentioned before we use Candy Rack so um, um, we've probably seen a double digit increase since we implemented candy rack in upsells so it allows us to curate upsells by product and upsells i mean that's probably not the appropriate word it's recommend recommendations that hey you should probably grab a lock we love this helmet this light set it will be very hum- helpful for you if you're riding at night just really some some standard things you should be buying um, and it'll pop up but that's been a really tremendous app for us as well um, and it's helped us I wouldn't say it's increase the lifetime value but it's certainly seen our average order value going up you know at least double digits if you know substantially
1: got it so you mentioned uh candy rack you mentioned judge.me for your for your reviews what other apps do you rely on to help run the business
0: yeah uh, i mentioned post-purchase survey has been great um i I think everyone on your podcast uses clavio obviously their shopify integration is incredibly powerful um, they also carry the data over to Facebook, which has allowed us to build some really powerful Facebook audiences to retarget to. Um, we use Smart Menu by Quickify, which is great. You know, that allows us to show images in our mega menu. So and we used to put product names in the menus. Um, so now we use images so people can visually see what they're going to click through to because our product names don't mean anything to customers. Um, so it really just enables better overall functionality and navigation. And it gets people very quickly to our product pages as opposed to sending them to a catalog page. Um, Talk.2, we use for our chat application. It's plenty powerful. It's free. It's plenty powerful for what ne- we need in terms of auto responses. And also, it allows to give contextual messages depending on where a user is located. So if they're in New York, uh, we may pop up, hey, come come visit us in the showroom. So that's also another great application. And lastly, I, I think it's outside of the Shopify ecosystem. There's no app, but Outgrow is what we use for our our quiz. And that's been a a massive lead generator for us Um, and it's just really allowed us to flow people into our our pipeline and and whether they buy our bike or another bike from somebody else just help us to educate them and get them on board as a a comfortable consumer because again bikes are something that can be intimidating I think the traditional the reason a brand like us can exist is because a lot of shops not all in fact there's a lot of tremendous bike shops out there but there's a tendency for bike shops to use bigger words than are necessary with a customer purchasing a bicycle. I mean, a lot of people just want to know if it's going to do what they need it to do. They don't need to know what the frame material is per se or, you know, you know, the 17 different types of brakes there are or all about the drivetrain. They just want to know if it's going to get over the bridge easy enough for them. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of our, our time and energy is spent uh, doing that. And, and again, outgrow is a, is a big part of getting people on board onto that that early funnel.
1: Awesome. So Brooklyn Bicycle Company, which is at Brooklynbicycleco And I'll leave you this last question. What's been the biggest lesson that you or the company has learned over the past year that you want to put into place moving forward?
0: Yeah, that's that's a great way to end it out. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we very much realize that, you know, we're not out here to save people's lives. So we try to keep it pretty, pretty lighthearted and have fun. Um, and a lot of that comes through with, with how we deal with our customers and our our, our, give a damn mentality that, that, you know, we go to the end of the world to make sure our customers are on the right product. They get a great experience delivering that. And then it's just continuing for us to continue to make sure we're telling that same story, keep doing what we're doing, giving people great experiences and continue to tell that story. And again, as I referenced earlier, um, the showroom has kind of brought that into a, a physical presence as opposed to just being able to do it virtually through our, our website on Shopify.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience, Brian.
0: Yeah, Felix, it's been great fun. I appreciate the questions, and I appreciate you having us on.
1: Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.